Welcome to Credit Union Conversations Podcast with your host, Mark Ritter, a forward-thinking CEO who excels in helping credit unions, small businesses, and real estate investors succeed. Join Mark as he explores current trends, interviews industry experts, and get fresh insights on optimizing your operations and delivering the best possible services to credit union members. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Ritter, your host of Credit Union Conversations. And during the day, I am the CEO of MBFS and New Direction Lending. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We drop these episodes every other Tuesday. Please be sure to subscribe on your favorite audio platform so you can listen to us. That's most convenient for you. We really appreciate the numbers and we really appreciate the uh, involvement with the show. Today, we're going to talk about marketing and really the marketing at your credit union. What works, what doesn't, what's changing, what we should be thinking about for the future. And today I brought in Mike Deneen, who is the SVP of marketing for American Heritage Credit Union. Mike, how you doing? I'm well, Mark. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So for those listeners, this is going to seem like a pretty casual conversation because Mike and myself usually have this same conversation over uh, Chick-fil-A or something like that on a pretty regular basis. So we're going to be talking a little bit about your world today, and hopefully you can pick up some things to help you out at your credit union. Mike, are you ready to go? Let's do it, Mark. So the first thing uh, I wanted to do is just kind of give people a little bit of your background and origin story and kind of how you transitioned into the credit union industry. Well, Mark, I, I've been at American Heritage and in the credit union movement for f- about five years now. And before that, uh, I did about 15 years or so in community banking. And before that, I worked at a couple uh, larger banks and credit card issuers. Uh, I think most or all of which are no longer in business for various reasons. But uh, I was a journalism major at West Virginia University. And I worked at the student newspaper. And like a lot of journalism majors in the 90s, I aspired to be a newspaper writer or uh, a newspaper advertising uh, person. And uh, thankfully, Uh, Like many of my colleagues who graduated journalism in the 90s, we were all able to pivot because of the changing landscape of media. So um, I began on the PR journalism side, and then when I went to graduate school, I transitioned over to the marketing analytics side. So I sort of have this duality of uh, of a data background and also very traditional uh, writing, journalism, PR background. Uh, And that's fast forward, here we are today. Great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, since we're both childs of the 90s coming out of college, it, it was really a different time. And, and I remember when I would get these sales, I got to get my first few sales jobs out of college. They would really say, here's a phone book, start to call people. Or you drove around knocking on doors, uh, disrupting business owners who didn't want you to do that. Um, and, and it always, when I was younger, it always just seemed like an incredibly inexpensive and inefficient way to, to sell products. I, I couldn't think of a, a, you know, it seems like I, I didn't talk to anybody uh, and it was more just like playing the lottery. You know, you, you've kind of seen this transition. T- tell me a little bit about kind of your perspective on 
personal selling today? Because, you know, as much as we like technology, there are some services where people still want to talk to a person and maybe how your world in the marketing and technology helps people do that a little bit more effectively. Yeah, and I, it's funny you say the phone book, Mark, because my first true advertising job, I remember one of the first things I had to do was manage Yellow Pages contracts. And I, I feel like if, if you can manage Yellow Pages contracts in you know, metro areas throughout the country, you can pretty much manage any media contract. Um, but in all seriousness, some things are inherently the same you would use a yellow pages to find a restaurant and then break it down into a pizza shop and keyword search kind of works the same way but to answer your question uh, a lot of things changing media landscape um, even even changing laws prohibit that personal selling on a pure door-to-door basis Uh, I, i remember branch managers who would literally knock on doors in townhome communities or would telemarket uh, and certainly or let their fingers do the talking through the yellow pages. So because you know, there's now telemarketing and do not call lists, uh, because there's no solicit uh, laws and ordinances in place, you really can't do those things, nor would the recipients want that. I don't think I'd like somebody knocking on my door to sell me a checking account or a loan. Um, so people still need that, that person-to-person ability, but you're able to provide personalized messaging or uh, awareness through other things like keyword search, like social media, like personalized emails. Uh, And even when you get to that purchase phase of the funnel, and we'll talk a little bit more about funnels and phases, there's still video options if somebody doesn't want to do it in person. Uh, You used to have to go to a local branch to have a direct conversation with a lender or a banker. And now you can have a chat with somebody who's maybe on the other side of the country. You can even uh, talk to a bot. And it it might not be a real person at all, but it's AI-powered, it's machine learning-based, and it can still provide you, to some extent, with the level of personalized service. What have it been like over the years for changing acceptance of people for these machine learning bots uh, you know, going from walking into the local branch and talking to somebody versus having that electronic channel. What have you noticed over the years and and uh, what, what's been the, the acceptance like? Well, everything evolves. Um, we, we grew up with three or five television channels and then we got cable and suddenly we had 35 to 40 and then we had 100. Uh, then you had subscriptions like HBO, which believe it or not is now 50 years old, I think. Uh, And now we've moved on to streaming. So people's behavior evolves all the time as new content is introduced, as new channels are introduced, um, behaviors and expectations change. So really, it's been the same thing in the banking and finance world. The branch was for a really long time, the only way you could interact with or transact or have a, a consultation. And then Phone banking and ATMs, or as we used to call them, Mac machines, really came in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I remember in the late 90s, I had an internship for Commonwealth Savings Bank. And I remember writing an article introducing their customers to online banking. And we thought, well, will people ever use this? But it, really, everything has been, it's about, it's driven by convenience. So 
the original ATM machines were driven by convenience. I can drive through, I can walk up, I don't need to wait in a, a line to talk to a person or fill out a big form. And online banking became the same way. And then you started to have digital banks and traditional banks and credit unions introduce online loan applications or deposit product uh, account opening. And that, that need for convenience has changed and evolved. So eventually you go from trying to get your, your customers or members to accept something to a point where it becomes an expectation. So you know, if you think about how we shop and you could compare a shopping mall to Amazon, uh, you could compare a grocery store to Instacart or, or Peapod and banking is no different. One of the reasons why Apple and Google are succeeding at, frankly, taking away some of the payments business from, from uh, traditional financial institutions is they're able to deliver it quicker, easier via mobile. They already have a lot of your information. You're already in, in their ecosystem. So to me, it's less about trying to get people to adapt rather than the institutions need to keep up with the expectations. Um, now, obviously, COVID accelerated a lot of those expectations, but uh, that's the reality. And then if you throw in other macro factors like labor shortages, uh, it just further necessitates the need. So I think the biggest right now from what I see and, and what we talk about here at the credit union is people call, they want the phone answered. And as as that evolves, then you need to start to look at bots or, or automated, um, other automated ways to answer questions on the phone. And that will be a, a bit of a challenge. But you know, we've done it successfully with our, our video teller solutions like Vanna uh, and Pat, which is, which is our, our ITM. Um, people, people adapt and understand, well, I might not go in and see a teller all the time, but I can go to the Pat machine. And even though that teller might not be right in front of me, he or she is you know, at another American Heritage location, and they're still giving me the same personalized service. Yeah, you, you mentioned branches. So I want to put a pin in that for a second and talk a little bit about branches. To give me your perspective on the branch role in today's marketing efforts at a credit union. Good, bad, or indifferent, there's still a lot of branches in this world. There's still a lot of real estate in this world. What, what do you see as, as their ideal role in, in your strategic marketing efforts? Well, we look at branches, uh, you can kind of break it into two main behaviors, transactions and consultations, right? So as an example, a transaction could be a cash withdrawal or a deposit a transfer, a consultation is I want to explore refinancing my home or buying a car or setting up a retirement account. And depending on where branches are or what clientele they serve and buy that, uh, take a credit union, for example, you may be a workplace partner for uh, you know, a, an employer that just you know, pays their employees in cash or has a cash intensive employee base. So that need for transactions is very uh, prevalent. So a branch still serves a very important role there. You know, there are other uh, areas or places or, or audiences that, that tend to skew more consultative. So what we have aimed to do is 
is delineate those two in a way that, again, we've introduced ITMs or what we call PAT machines, uh, both at the drive-thru and even in the lobbies to accommodate the transactors. And then we still have our staff that handles the consultative end. And it's interesting, Mark, because this goes beyond banking. Um, just a few of us on the staff, we have, as you can imagine, in a marketing department, we have a wide-ranging uh, array of conversations about consumer behavior. And Starbucks is pretty similar. Uh, I have three kids, and two of them, they order the same thing all the time. It's just a transaction for them. We put the order on the app. We go to the drive-thru, we pick it up, we're done. And I have one one child who loves to sample all the different seasonal things. She sees things on TikTok and she wants to try custom orders. So she and I typically go inside the Starbucks and basically what's a, a consultation with the barista, right? And you know, she'll look at the menu, she'll ask some questions, and uh, most of them know her by name at this point in our local Starbucks, but... That's how she consumes the Starbucks experience inside the building in a consultative format. And again, the others in the family, it's a transaction. They use the drive-through or even if they order on the mobile app, they go in, they pick it up, they're in, they're out. Um, at the same time, you know, sometimes Starbucks can be an experiential moment. Uh, we do staff meetings there once in a while. We, you know, some of our employees, when we do our one-on-ones, we, might do it at Starbucks or in some cases Panera, because as you know, Mark, we have a brand new Panera down the street. So branches, uh, Chick-fil-A, you mentioned Starbucks, uh, a lot of retail or consumer facing organizations are all trying to balance that same thing. Transaction versus consultation, in-person experiential versus those who just want to get in and out. So, so that's, that's the same approach to the branch. And I'm not going to speak too much to, to the layout or, or design of the branch, but I can certainly speak to the merchandising. So, you know, on the inside, we, we tend to be very heavy on consultative, uh, e even sometimes rate-driven advertising. And we've really repurposed uh, and even reimagined the drive-through where we still have the full-service ITM, we have digital displays. And again, if you go to a lot of different retailers, you've seen them take the same approach. In fact, Chick-fil-A... Uh, since the pandemic, you've seen a lot of them completely redevelop their entire footprint where they have more drive-throughs. They have more digitized merchandise at the drive-throughs. They have people taking orders on iPads. So uh, again, it, it, consumer behaviors change. There are segments that want self-serve quick. There are some who still want the personal touch. They want the consultation. So I want to move to what you called the other, uh, just a few minutes ago, your, your sales funnel which in marketing is, I, I keep hearing the lingo, I think I know what it means. And being that I was a marketing major at Penn State, I should know what it means, but I don't. So let's talk a little bit about social media and the sales process and the emails. But, but first of all, kind of reset with everybody and myself, when you talk about the sales funnels, what does that mean and from your side? Yeah, and we call it the, the consumer behavior journey or, or funnel. So from our angle, if you look at three distinct phases, so there's the general awareness phase, and then there's the decision-making um, or consideration phase, and then there's really that, that purchase point-of-sale phase. So 
think about it in terms of advertising and we can even, and we do uh, apply key performance indicators to those. So really your awareness phase is simply making people aware of your brand or even a general need because in the credit union space, you, you really, you, you don't sell products. You don't sell or push products. You meet members needs and expectations. Uh, I don't inherently look at it like I'm selling you a mortgage. I look at it as you're trying to buy your home or maybe reduce the payment on your home or use the equity in your home because you have a need. So if you can understand the needs that you're trying to satisfy, and if you think about it in the credit union space, these are really impactful things in people's lives. Again, buying a home, buying a car, saving for a wedding or retirement or college, uh, consolidating debt. These are major uh, milestones for people. So what we like to do is at the awareness phase, make people aware that we can solve these challenges or we can help people meet these dreams and or goals. And then the next phase consideration is where you start to present options. Uh, again, if you're looking to lower the payment on your house, you could refinance if you need to use the equity in your home because you have a renovation or, or a debt or you know another life goal, uh, there's there's home equity, there's refinances. And then the third phase purchase is where you really start to compare the pricing, whether it's rate, whether it's monthly payment, and that's where you can present things. So think about the marketing for a moment and the marketing channels you might use. In the awareness phase, if I'm trying to get my brand out to as many people as I can, I have television, streaming, audio, radio, um, I have these these channels which have major distribution, uh, major impressions. And then as you get further down the funnel and people start to do comparison shopping, uh, what do they do? They often go to websites. They, they do comparison shopping. Uh, they look at rates. They do search engine marketing. And then the point of sale, which is really that purchase phase, is where you need to look at your delivery channels and make it as easy as possible for them to either apply for a product, acquire the product, activate it, or you know, whatever the, the fulfillment channel is relevant to that that product. Um, and, and I don't want to say it's gotten easier because it, it's frankly gotten much more complicated with data and analytics, but we do have a, a lot more options at our disposal as marketers. We're, we're not in a phase anymore. We can just kind of spray and pray. You know, if somebody is Googling free checking account in Philadelphia, the chances are pretty good that they're looking for a free checking account in Philadelphia, right? So then we can start to capture that audience. And we know that they're already looking for an account. They're at a point now where they're trying to figure out what account works best for them. So we can present things on a website. We can do uh, email follow-up. So those are really the three phases, Mark, awareness, consideration, and purchase. Uh, there are some other academics or even other uh, you know, other industries might expand that or, or change some of the nomenclature, but we feel pretty comfortable with it. Uh, if somebody's never owned a home, I don't want to put a mortgage rate in front of them and say, here, come buy your house today because of this rate. I want to give them content and educational information, whether it's a blog or a seminar or a, a white paper on, these are the things you need to consider if you want to buy a home. This is how you shop for a house. This is how you save for your down payment. You know, here, here's some guidelines on affordability uh, and educate them. Um, in our marketing department here, we have something on the wall that says educate first, 
sell second. I never want our credit union or really any credit union for that matter to be pushing product first. We should always be educating first. And, and that aligns really well with the, the funnel uh, as you describe it. So really probably that biggest shift has been, you know, when you put an ad in the Sunday paper, when you put in uh, a, a TV spot on the six o'clock news, you're blasting it out to as many eyeballs as possible, and a very small pe- percentage of people will act on that. You're really shifting it more towards we want to put our message in front of the people who want the message that we're giving them. Is that a fair assessment? It, it is, Mark. And again, if you think about how media has has changed or evolved um, for a long time. It, that was exactly it. It was radio, newspaper, maybe billboards, and if you had a really big budget, television. And we, we got to a point where direct response or direct mail became more prevalent because, again, it was to some level personalized. I knew if I was sending um, – I remember working at a, a, an institution in the 90s, and we were kind of the first direct response team that they had put together. And we knew if we were selling – IRAs, we were really looking at, at you know, members who, who might have skewed older uh, or had a little bit of higher income or net worth uh, because I don't want to push an IRA to a 14-year-old, right? Uh, or I should say an 18-year-old because I wouldn't have marketed to a 14-year-old. But <laughs> so direct mail and, and even when email came in allowed us to get a little bit more personalized. But now we have even more data. And again, this is where Apple and Google uh, are starting to win in, in other you know, payment and financial services products because we might know what somebody's searching for. Uh, we, we, thanks to cookies, know what pages of the website. If, if you're a member of ours and we know that you keep going to that auto loan page on the site, then you're probably looking for an auto loan. Uh, we also have people who voluntarily subscribe to things. We have social media followers. We have people who like certain types of posts. Um, we have blog subscribers. So you start to get a better idea of what uh, what people's interests are uh, or what their needs are just based by their own behavior. And you know, obviously, there, there's privacy and regulation concerns that come into that. But you know, we feel comfortable that it also allows us to present a more personalized message to our members instead of, like you said, just blasting and, and spraying and, and hoping. Uh, that just creates noise for people. And, and it's no, noise pollution is something where people will tune you out. So let's talk a little bit about social media. And we'll, we'll, we'll make this our, our wrap it up topic and talk and, and do a little bit of a deep dive into it. Sure. When it comes to social media, I personally would be considered a laggard. I try to stay off as much as possible other than LinkedIn. Uh, And and much of the social media, uh, like my wife, my daughter, my son, they're all in. What do you see as the the different social media platforms which ones really work for you and which ones are, are a tougher lift to get your message out? Well, they all serve a very different purpose, right? LinkedIn is, um, somebody once called it Facebook for adults, but you know, Facebook's also 
for adults as well. So they all, like I said, they all serve a different purpose, Mark. So LinkedIn is, it, it's B2B to some extent. It's professional networking. Uh, it, it's business driven or at least business person driven. Um, you know, Facebook really tends to, at this point, skew more towards Gen X. I know Meta or Facebook has tried to make it more of a marketplace to try to monetize it. But, you know, we we really try to keep product away from almost all of our posts. Again, it's a place to educate and inform rather than promote and sell. So, you know, Facebook is really about a place where we put our uh our, our community events, our seminars, our uh, community impact on there. Now, interestingly, Facebook advertising is where you can. So there's a you know, there's an organic component, which is what we post, and then there's a, a paid component, which is how we can target and advertise. And that's actually been pretty successful for us. Obviously, Instagram and, and TikTok are more around whether it's video or I'll say video, photo, or entertainment sharing. So again, you know, we have an event here when we do something in the community, Instagram is, is a great way for us to share that. And there's, there's many, many others out there. Um, Twitter's, it's been interesting since Mr. Musk took over Twitter. Uh, we've actually lost a few dozen Twitter followers and that could be because they were bots or maybe they didn't like Twitter anymore. Uh, but we noticed kind of an acceleration in that. Um, but again, we use that as a way to put news out, uh, primarily, but. Remember, social media is beyond just posting. So for a lot of consumers, they feel like that's the only way they can get in touch with a business. So, uh, and I've kind of found that as a hack as well as a consumer. If I can't get through on a phone or if there's a long line, at, uh, I had to return something at Walmart the other day. Uh, if I have a real issue, if I DM one of the social channels, I'll get an answer pretty quickly. So I, I like to say that for every uh, angry customer out there, there there's a, a social media specialist or coordinator on the other side who will kind of cut through it and, and get them the help they need. And we've seen an increase in that as well. Uh, not, not the angry member part, but the part where we're getting more and more inquiries through direct messages on social media. Um, in fact, we just leveraged a third party a marketing automation platform um, that, that actually harnesses all of our social media messaging. And um, it's been very successful. You know, it's created an interesting partnership and a successful partnership with our member services team and the marketing team. So again, social media is a channel and um, some people use it for entertainment. Some use it for direct communication with the company. Some use it for information. We try to use it for all of the above, but we really don't push products on social media. Uh, it just, it, it's not becoming of our brand. And I think, frankly, most of us as social media consumers don't like it or wouldn't like it if we see companies, you know, slamming promotional offers out there all day long. Uh, people would tend to tune that out or ignore it or, or stop following. So, again, that, that educate first mantra, uh, we use social for education uh, and informing primarily. And we're, we're blessed. We have a, a very engaged employee base. We have an extremely engaged uh, membership. In fact, uh, we're one of the top 50 or 40 in financial brand nationwide for credit unions on social media. But uh, we, you know, part of that is we put good engaging content out and we have a, a really receptive and engaged membership base, which is a, a good partnership. One of the things we know 
credit unions were built on that philosophy of people helping people. And social and digital uh, have allowed us to evolve that with new media. It's, it's people who manage social media and they can communicate directly with other people, such as the membership in the community. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways, and especially for smaller credit unions, we, we would advise them leverage your social channels. It, it's a great way to connect with your communities and, and again, evolve that people helping people uh, philosophy. Well, that's great. I feel like every day I probably get 10 solicitations for companies trying to uh, help me out with my social media and website followers and website traffic. Is there, is there value? Do you recommend kind of outsourcing this social media piece to maximize it? Because I think there's a big difference between a lot of followers or eyeballs and effectiveness. So, so when I get all of these solicitations from every marketing company that's popping up, you know, what, what should I be careful for? And, and, and what are the good, how do I know a good one is a good one? There's a few questions baked into that, Mark. I, I think uh, real quickly, I'll touch on the metric piece of that. You're right. Followers and subscribers are, are great because it's a captive audience and you want to kind of win in that space. The more people have their eyeballs on you or, you know, there's more people that creates more impressions, but the engagement is, uh, is something that, that is our biggest focus because if people are liking or commenting or sharing, whether it's even a good or a bad comment, uh, they, they tend to skew very good, thankfully. Uh, but but the, the likes, the shares, and the engagement is where you, you start to create and amplify your audience. If, if one of our employees reshares a, a blog post that we put on LinkedIn, then their followers see it. And, and there's a, there's a multiple multiplier effect on that, right? So, so we agree. Those are the scores we really look is, is the overall engagement, not just the followers or the impressions. As far as third parties, I mean, I, I agree with you, Mark. I get calls and, and emails, uh, even postcards, believe it or not, uh, day in, day out, uh, looking for help. At our size and scope at our credit union, we, we have an in-house content team and, uh, it, it's a great group. They are, they have their finger on the pulse of the membership, the community. Um, and we actually meet every week. I should say they meet the content uh, pod, we call them and they look at upcoming events. They look at national days, whether it's, you know, national dog day. Um, I mean, that's one of many, but. You know, and they try to make everything relatable to the member. So if we have something in the community, if we're celebrating something at one of our workplace partners, if we have a member contest, um, we try to put out content on a consistent basis, but it has to be meaningful to the audience. So we're, we're able to manage it in-house. I, I'm, I'm not going to endorse any, any third party, but if you have a third party that, that is involved with or manages your social media, they really have to be treated like an extension of your team. There has to be a significant trust factor. I mean, you, you'd be turning over uh, your arguably one of your biggest communication channels to a third party. So, uh, you know, certainly my advice would be vet them, uh, check their references. Again, they're an extension of your team, which means their voice becomes your, is, is your brand voice. Uh, so, you know, typically, uh, you know, if, 
if an institution were to look at a third party on the other side of the country and you really don't know them, do you really want them representing your brand? Uh, I guess you know, I'm answering a question with a question. Um, if you're looking at a bigger level, like a CRM or a marketing automation, uh, on the other hand, we do believe that bigger is better. You know, if somebody has a proven track record in your industry, uh, they tend to be a pretty good partner on, on the bigger level. But social media is such a personalized one-on-one thing. Um, there's a significant trust factor with who, who you allow in, in that space on your behalf. Good, good points. Well, and, and Mike, you, you and your team do, does a great job at getting, not only just getting the message out there, but turning that, that, that activity into uh, sales products and solutions for people. And your philosophy and strategy is really strong with it. So that's why I was uh, happy to have you on today to to kind of educate the people. Any uh, parting words? Well, I, I appreciate your comments about our team, Mark. We have we've built a, a wonderful team here, and they're very. I'd say they're reflective of the membership. They put themselves in the shoes of the membership every day, which I think makes their their content, their posts, uh, whether it's their emails, website copy. Uh, it makes it very relatable to members and you could have the biggest brand budget in the world and the shiniest logo, but really your brand is, is what's delivered by your people. Uh, they are your best brand ambassadors. So we're, we're very lucky to have the team we do. Um, they're all members as well. They believe in the movement. So, um, so we, we think that's really been one of our biggest success stories uh, throughout this credit union. It's just simply the team that we've built. Um, so, so thank you for that comment, but, uh, it, it's this is a changing business, right? Uh, what, what worked a few years back, whether it's marketing or anything else, uh, will change. But people's needs, members' needs, really inherently don't change. Again, saving, borrowing, spending for that that bigger dream, that bigger goal. We just, as as marketers and communicators, have to always find the, the latest and most innovative and compliant ways to deliver it. So. That's the never-ending challenge we have, but but it's an exciting space, and uh, we we appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you about it, Mark. So thank you for having me today. Well, joining me today was Mike Deneen, who is the senior vice president of marketing for American Heritage Credit Union. Appreciate his words of wisdom. Hopefully, you picked up some pointers today or thoughts to bring back to your credit union. And for everybody listening, thank you for joining us. Please subscribe. You know, we'll continue to drop episodes every two weeks on Tuesday. And thank you and have a great day. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Credit Union Conversations podcast. Have a question? Visit markritter.com for more information.